The following podcast is intended for general information and entertainment purposes only. It should not be substituted for professional medical or psychological advice. Before beginning or changing a treatment plan, please consult your local healthcare professional. Welcome back to another episode of Biopsychosocial. I am Jordan. I am the world's okayest healthcare worker. And I'm Kayla, a therapist and future cult leader. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so here we are today, and this is going to be our last episode of the season. And to celebrate that, we're having champagne in our big Lilith Energy tumblers. Mm-hmm. So, so, so cheers to all y'all. It's a sparkling red. It's quite del- it's quite delicious. It's it like is. one of the only sparkling reds that I can find. So whenever I do find it, it's by Apothic. We're not sponsored, but you know, Apothic, hey. Not spawn. Non-spawn. But it's it's quite delicious and quite affordable. Also, if you uh, want to get yourself a big Lilith energy tumbler, you you can you can go on Etsy. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll throw up some products that you can get. I don't know. Yeah. Who wants one? Tell us. Yes, um, you have to you have to have a shirt that says Big Lilith Energy in order to be in our cult. So, yes, um, you also you should get a shirt with your bestie uh, that says, you know, your bestie wears a shirt that says COVID-19 and your bestie wears a shirt that says, yep. <laughs> COVID-19. Yes. <laughs> you wanted to you wanted to read something to me, little friend. Oh, well, let's introduce oh, our yes. topic of the day first, because I have to, I have to do with that. Well, I didn't know. Well, I, I didn't know if it did or it didn't. Yeah, I didn't give you context. No, you did not give me context. Yeah, that's what our texts say sometimes. Um, you need to give me context for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so today we're going to be talking about Caprini Green, which is an area in Chicago that had housing projects mm-hmm. and all of the associated Things that went on with that. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's. Clover is using the restroom right now, so we're going to wait until she's done. Are we seriously filming this podcast in your cat's bathroom? She doesn't have anywhere else to use the bathroom. Well, she does. She can you go to the bathroom. literally have one in the bathroom. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> she just wants to, to take a shit near us. Oh, she's done. Okay. She's done. She didn't even do anything. She just wanted she just to, wanted to move around. She the, wanted uh, us to know she was here. She just wanted to move around the pellets. So yes, Cabrini Green is the focus of the 1992 horror film Candyman. And when Jordan said, um, "Let me know when you find a documentary," I said, "I'm probably just going to send you Candyman." And then I said, "I need to remember the name that she told me originally for the housing project." And thankfully, I did, and I was able to find it. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, the reason that it was chosen to be in Candyman, because originally it was a Clive Barker story, and Clive Barker is from England. So the the short story that he wrote that inspired Candyman took place in England. So John Malkovich took this idea and put it in the United States. And Cabrini Green was so infamous for its crime and poverty and just generally ne'er-do-well happenings and things like that. Um, that it became the focus of this film, which the story has to do with a an African-American man who was a slave and fell in love with a white woman and was killed for it. And he becomes the boogeyman of Cabrini Green, but represents a lot more than I think just 
a boogeyman. He kind of represents all of the horrible things that have happened there and the way that people have dealt with the trauma of, of what's happened there. I do have to say that I think the newer film that came out in 2021 kind of retakes the narrative and gives it back to the black people that actually mm-hmm. are part of this story and not in the hands of the white woman who was the focus of the, the original film. Right. If the boogeyman was going to be haunting anywhere, it'd be haunting the white folks that persecuted the black man. Who ha- um, Right, exactly. Thanks, I hate so, it. So uh, I wanted to start off in reading the story that really inspired um, writers to focus Candyman in the Cabrini Green project, other than the fact that it just had a bad reputation. So this is the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy. This was a, a story written by Steve Bogira for the Chicago Reader around the time that it occurred in the late 80s. So this occurred in April of 1987. So have you ever, um, I'm curious if you or our readers, of, or readers, viewers, our listeners. listeners who can't respond, have you ever watched that TikTok where the girl um, opens, like pulls out her bathroom cabinet in New York City and she finds another apartment behind her yes. bathroom mirror? Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is similar to that, except terrifying. Okay. Not that that's, that's not terrifying. This is, yeah, this is why when I watched that the first time, I was like, oh my God, this is no good for you. Go get out of there. So Ruthie Mae McCoy was 52 living in Chicago. She was an African-American woman and she was well known in the area for her paranoia. And um, she was potentially, I don't want to diagnose her because um, Steve, the author never says that she's schizophrenic or anything in particular, but she definitely suffered with paranoia and was kind of like known in the community for paranoid beliefs and things like that. So she was living in the ABLA building of a Southside Chicago housing project. It was the Grace Abbott Homes, which was known as known to be the most dangerous in Chicago. So in April of 1987, she reports to 911 that there was a disturbance in her bathroom. She said they throwed the cabinet down with really no other context. And so the dispatch was unsure and thought she meant maybe there was a domestic dispute next door with the the neighbors. and, And she heard the ruckus and wanted to report it to the police. So he, he or she, the dispatcher, did not report it as a break-in. So there wasn't really any, like, the there was no urgency for the police to be there. Although, I mean, if it's a domestic disturbance, you would think that they would want to be there pretty quickly. And unfortunately, if it's in an area where there's a lot of cases, a lot of dis- domestic disputes, and a lot of violence, Correct. you can only respond to so many. I'm not saying that that's acceptable, but I'm saying that it's probably the reality. So she makes the call at 8.45 p.m., at 9.04 p.m., no police have shown yet, but neighbors called into 911. They hear shot, shots fired and hollering from neighboring apartments. Mm-hmm. So a- after that, at 9.10, the officers arrive. So after six minutes after they report shots fired, the officers arrive there. Sure. So they knock on Ruthie Mae's door, and there's no response. So rather than just breaking down the door, they go to the super or the janitor, it wasn't really clear to me, to see if they could get in. They did not receive a response. One neighbor on one side didn't answer. The neighbor on the other side was not there. It was an abandoned apartment. Mm -hmm. So they left. And this is at 9.48 p.m., so more than an hour after Ruthie makes makes the call. So the next day, one of the neighbors uh, calls the cops to report concern over Ruthie not stopping by as usual. So she stops by this neighbor's house every morning to just check in. And I can't remember if she said they had breakfast together or something like that every day. But she didn't stop by. So the neighbors wanted a welfare check. So police come and they want to break down the door. But security in the building stops them from doing that. And they're like, well, this could be a liability if you break down the door. 
because, which I mean, I guess is fair because when police break down your door, you're responsible for fixing it. They will not give you money to fix it. And now you also have another security issue where you don't have a door. Correct. (laughs) So the, the police leave again. So the day after that, now we're at two days after Ruthie makes this initial call. After the same neighbor, so the same neighbor who reports her to the police wanting a welfare check calls the super of the building. And so they finally come up and they drill through the lock on the door and they find Ruthie dead in a pool of blood on the floor. So this was at a time period when one of three, she was, she was one of three residents murdered at the end of April in, in this housing project. And the only press coverage at the time was in the Defender, which was a Black-owned newspaper. So they were the only ones in the entire city of Chicago that covered this at all whatsoever. So what happened was murderers had entered her apartment from the abandoned apartment next door that I had told you about through the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. So literally just like the TikTok. Just like the TikTok, and if you can recall in Candyman, the, the way that you summon him is you go into the... Well, any mirror, really. But usually you go into the bathroom mirror and say Candyman three times. He comes through the mirror and he gets you. Why anyone would want that? I don't know. Like, let me try it out. I know. I don't want to pay my student loan, so maybe you'll just kill me. Did we all do it at a sleepover? Absolutely. I did it with Bloody Mary. I Bloody do, Mary? I did Blue Bloody Baby. Mary. I didn't do Blue Baby. Candyman. You don't know about Blue Baby? No. You say Blue Baby several times and apparently like a dead baby just shows up in <laughs> Why, why Why did why? we want this to happen when we were younger? Little Jordan probably just wanted a Bloody Mary. Um. <laughs> so the Chicago Tribune uh, posted an article about, not posted an article, published an article about it. And, and asked the hypothetical question, like, what kind of place would allow this to happen to somebody? Not only was this woman in her 50s murdered, but nobody looked into it for several days. The police continually checked and then left. And readers were not interested in this. They were they didn't really care to find out the answer. They were not concerned about what was happening in this area. Because it couldn't happen to them because they don't live in the projects. Right. So, and the other Grace Abbott residents were unfazed. So these break-ins had been happening for at least a year. So they were used to hearing this story. And what happened was there were, people came in through the pipe chase, which is the section between two apartments where the pipes are located but they could kind of shimmy in between the two of them to get from apartment to apartment and you could even go up or down so there were there was like a a, i said 'er ne'er-do-wells because i don't know if it was a gang or if it was like people doing a drug deal or something like that in the abandoned apartment next door and they the reason they came through ruthie's cabinet is because she they were trying to create an escape route for themselves Uh, they need it and the only thing keeping them from pushing the cabin out with six nails in the wall. Like it was not a very secure thing. It's not hard to do. Um, They also, I guess Ruthie had very recently won, I don't want to say like disability or social security or something. She had won like a small lump of money. It was less than $2,000, but she was about to use it to get out of the project. So she was going to put first, last and security towards like an apartment in the nicer area of town. I mean, she was a very religious woman. She had at least a daughter. I don't know if she had other children who were, you know, concerned about her and involved in her life. She was going to church regularly. So, yeah, she became a victim of these pieces of shit (laughs) who decided to murder her to attempt to take her money. I don't even know if they succeeded. But that is just a glimpse of kind of what it was like to live in this area. Yeah. Um, And also the inspiration for the film, which took place in another housing project. 
So I just wanted to set the scene with that story. I think it is absolutely like wild that this, you know, that's an understatement. Steve Borgira wrote an article in 2014 about the link between his um, reporting and Candyman. And he had talked about John Malkovich approaching him and saying that he wanted to, to set this story in this area, in this building. And uh, the author had communicated his discomfort at the protagonist of the film being a white woman. And John Malkovich very plainly said, black people starring in movies doesn't sell movies. So we're going to put, I don't remember who was it Sharon Stone who was in that movie. I don't know. I don't no, want to look it up. I don't want to be John Malkovich. No. <laughs> Virginia Madsen Madsen. played Helen Lyle. She was good in Sideways. Yeah, Virginia Madsen. So, um, yep. So, like I said, in the remake, the narrative is is taken back by the Black folks who are in the film and write it, it, wrote, directed the film, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good one. Check it out. Have to check it out. Then, I guess, fuck John Malkovich. The sad thing is is that he's not wrong. No, he's not wrong. I think that's more... I don't know. Somebody had to be willing to be courageous enough to say, like, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to cast a black person in this movie. It's yeah. not about the money. Yeah. But unfortunately, here we are. So what did you watch in preparation, my friend? So I watched a documentary called 70 Acres in Chicago, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend. It was an independently um, funded and, and filmed film. Um, it cost me six bucks. I, I'll link it in the description. It was an hour long. It was really good and very informative. Um, and I watched um, Crisis on Federal Street, uh, which was a 1992 PBS documentary. I'm a huge fan of public television and Mr. Rogers, just saying. Yes, PBS. Yes. Um, that followed the uh, Robert Taylor housing, um, another in the inner city of Chicago. And I kind of wanted to watch an older documentary because I wanted to watch how they reported in 1922 with my 2022 lenses on. So I was two when this came out and I'm almost 32 now. So let's see what 30 years did. There was a lot of similarities and there was stuff that it was. Yeah, I can imagine. Cringy. Um, But it was mostly, it was, again, it was one hour. I found it on YouTube. It was mostly, it was very good, very good documentary. I didn't check to see the background of the person who made this documentary. I don't know if they were a former resident. Hold on. Hold please. Chicago's very important to us. Ronit Bezalil. Oh, that is a white woman. Let's see. Can confirm what is, what her background is. She lives in Jerusalem, Israel, and Chicago, Illinois. Okay. My work focuses on the underdog, the marginalized, and those living outside the mainstream. Cool. Okay. Okay. So not one somebody who's from this area in Chicago, but it but someone that wants to talk about it. So right. someone to whom. Uh, telling the story of the marginalized is important. Correct. Correct. And uh, so the documentary that I watched was basically an overview on the area and the plight of the people that were in the area, which were severe and yours. Mine was about um, what was happening to the residents after Cabrini Green was torn down and they had nowhere to go or were unsure about where they were going to go. Right. So the before, the before and the after. Um, so. This op- um, So mine just opened up and it was, you know, it takes place in the inner city of Chicago and des- it was described as an inner city of social misfits. It was one of the poorest urban communities in Chicago and um, it was financially 
you know, financially funded by the federal government. So the government housing projects or the mm-hmm. projects. Um, I hate when people do air quotes. I'm sad that I did that. Um, I do that all the time. I do too. So mostly black, vast, vast, vast majority uh, black community. So people that lived in the community were dependent on various um, federally funded programs, whether it be welfare, USDA provided foods, food stamps, and it really discussed the generational poverty that happened in the that happened in the community. Mm-hmm. So when when does yours start? Like when do, when do they start in terms of the history of the housing projects in Chicago? Nineteen fifties. 1949, 1950s, because that's when the, yeah, Harry, it was Harry Truman that started the housing projects. I think one of the most most important, one of the most interesting things to me that I learned was the history of the 70 acres in Chicago that eventually turned into Cabrini Green and a couple of other projects. But Mm -hmm. in the early 1900s, it was an, an area known as an immigrant slum. So there was a, there was a city ordinance that Italians Jewish folks and what was the other one? Oh, African American people, of course, were not allowed to live with the white people in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So they ended up being confined to these slums. Um, and they were shoddy buildings that landlords asked a premium to live in and they didn't take care of them. There was no maintenance. People were very poor. They were working in factories and other menial jobs. Um, a lot of physical labor, things like that. Mm-hmm. So when, so the population from 1910 to 1920 went from 44,000 to 109,000 in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then in 1930 to 234,000. Mm-hmm. And what we saw from that was um, freed African slaves or African Americans coming up to Chicago to start their lives and to buy property and start jobs and start families and things like that. Um, so tons and tons of people were moving in and there was not enough room for people because Chicago is not, was not then as big as it is now. No. So in 1933, we saw FDR's New Deal and that funded the demolition of these slums. I don't like calling them that, but I don't either. But and in 1937, the Chicago Housing Authority was established, which built Cabrini Green and these other um, mm-hmm. housing projects. Yep. So. Well, this says 1940 Little Sicily, which was what it was called, this area with Italians, Blacks, and Jews, was called Little Sicily, and it was demolished. There was no record of what happened to the residents there. They were just kind of, you're SOL, you're on your own, good luck. Um, Nobody knows where they went. They were just displaced. So history repeats itself, as usual. And I have 1949. Housing projects started to get rid of this, to to house the people that came from the slums. And to replace the slums. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's essentially what happened at that point in time. Because they were like, this is disgusting. We don't want our sit in a, I'm not saying it because I agree with it. But they were saying, this is a blight. We don't want to look at it. We want our city to look nice. Let's get these people out of here. Let's demolish these buildings and just start over. But what happened? Because you didn't change the root cause of the problem, which is systemic racism and generational poverty. Mm -hmm. History repeated itself. Ta-da! Mm-hmm. Making the buildings nice and pretty only works for so long. Um, because af- because 1949, 25 years later, um, the projects were crowded. They were 
run down, poor access to water. So this was in the 70s. This is in the 1970s. That's people insane. don't have people don't have access to water now in this country, which is ludicrous. And part of the reason why it became so crowded was because segregation still existed in one way or another. So even if it wasn't outright segregation, like black people can't live here, it was what did they call it? There was racist real estate practices like mm-hmm. covenants. If anyone's interested, there was a show on Amazon Prime called Them, mm-hmm. which it follows a black family that moves into the white suburbs and what their experience is like there. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And that's how I learned about a covenant. So when if you like are the first person to own a home, I believe, like if you mm-hmm. build a home, you can create a covenant. So if I were to build a home right now, my covenant would say that this can only be purchased by an, an not owner operator. What am I looking for? Owner purchaser. So like the only person who can purchase a home is someone is someone who is going to live there. So it can't be an investment property. It can't be purchased by an LLC or something like that. It has to be the person who's going to live there. Right. But the covenants created back then were that black people could not live in this house or this neighborhood. So they were prevented from buying these nice houses and these nice areas, even though they could afford it. Mm-hmm. Like when we went to the Norman Rockwell Museum, remember that painting that we saw? Of Ruby Bridges? The one of Ruby Bridges and the one of the black family moving into the white neighborhood mm-hmm. and the, the yes. children meeting at yes. the same time and go to the Norman Rockwell Museum, by the way. It's awesome. But yeah, um, it was a yeah. great painting of it was a black family moving into a predominantly white neighborhood and the black children and the white children are meeting each other and they have all of these things in common. Yeah. Like <laughs> they both play baseball and they mm-hmm. have pets and things like that. And they're just kind of looking at each other like. Can we be friends? And then there's some doucher in the back and the curtain. Peeking out the, peeking out the window. Right. Yeah. And we know that children, well, we Are, learn racism. Racism yeah. is a learned. It's not inborn. Mm-hmm. But we know that children don't have the same sort of discriminatory beliefs a lot of the time. Right. That we have as adults. They're, um, they're kids just want to play with each other. They just want to have fun. Right. So history repeated itself. We had hazardous infected buildings that were not maintained, that were infested with roaches, mice, rats. Uh, that were overpopulated and again, predominantly, predominantly black. And they had explained in my documentary that what was going on was um, that there was a shutdown in factories and stockyards closed in the fifties and sixties when around 15,000 people were living in Cabrini green. So these folks who were living in the area didn't have a job anymore. So a lot of them stopped paying rent Mm -hmm. because there was no rent income they couldn't keep up with the maintenance, allegedly. I feel like there's always a fund you can find to like take. One of the women that they interviewed was like, there used to be a really nice lawn that was manicured all the time that we could go hang out in. And there was a pool and there was a playground and they just stopped taking care of these things. Yeah. Um, and that statement is true for across the board, mm-hmm. um, across the country. When factories shut down, coal mines shut down, a lot of people were displaced and out of and out of work. So if you're already on the brink of oh, living yeah. just at the poverty line, there it goes. I mean, our hometown was one of those yeah. places. Our oh, yeah. hometown, a lot of places in Connecticut are old, mm-hmm. old factory towns. Yeah. That there was a big boom and probably like the, what, the 30s, 20s, mm-hmm. 30s. Yeah. I know my great grandfather was a machinist. Yeah. My he grandparents were machinists. Yeah. So, and then that's dead now. That's yeah, it's just gone. not there anymore. And you see the dilapidated factory all over town, the dilapidated factories all over town. Mm-hmm. And you can't, it's something that you can't recover from, but it takes generations. Yes. Like our hometown is just starting to kind of get a little bit of vitality back and a little bit of adjustment, which is yeah. kind of nice, but this is 50 years later. 
So a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, we do have a lot of low, we do have a lot of housing projects and low income housing and as to where, as to where we grew up, but Mm -hmm. it's so, you know, a lot of this is, we've seen it too. And it's, and it's a tough, and it's a tough, you know, it's a tough situation. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's just in areas like Chicago or New York or LA, it was just because they're bigger cities. It was Mm -hmm. on such a larger scale, especially up in the North and probably in the West coast when um, African-American people were fleeing the South mm-hmm. to go to better places. Well, quote, unquote better places. Mm-hmm. That they a could little buy bit. Homes and, yeah. and do what they wanted to do, start families and mm-hmm. work and have careers and things like that. And then the other part is you're living in an urban setting where the cost of living is, it tends to be higher. Yeah. Um, so even more so lower paying jobs or no income at all, you're more liable and it's easier to get behind the eight ball, if you will. So the housing projects, um, Back so in the '60s, Nixon before fuck all happened, he did increase the housing project budget by a scoodle. A scoodle, a scoodle. Yep, just that a, a scientific measurement. That's a technical term. You got a scoodle. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the areas were still very, very dangerous. A lot of crime. Half of all of the crimes in the housing projects of Chicago happened inside of the homes. Mm-hmm. You know, so domestic violence, rape, um, murder. Inside the apartments. One of the people that's um, interviewed that was like a former Cabrini Green resident Mm -hmm. at the point of the documentary being made was talking about one of his experiences as a child watching what he didn't know then that he knows now is was a drug deal gone bad and someone was shot and killed like right when he was playing outside with his friends. Mm -hmm. And it was also they were interviewing him and he had this very adorable baby girl like Aww. on his hip that was yelling into the microphone. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> and they talked about the elevators being really dangerous too. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When I used to have to, when I did home care, I went to housing projects a lot mm-hmm. and it was like, you you pick the elevator or the stairs. Um, what does Cardi B say in one of her songs? She goes from pissy elevators. Now everything is tailored. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep. Home care nurse tip, hit the button with a pen. Um, put, put your gloves on first. Nope. Button. Pen. I would just take the stairs. Scares are, stairs are scary too. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, in, in Candyman, the um, Helen, the protagonist of the film, she's, I don't remember. She's like a grad student doing a project or something like mm-hmm. that. But I can't remember what the project is about. But I remember her taking photos of the graffiti that's around the building. That's like part of what she's doing. I don't, I don't remember. I don't know what the point of that would be, but okay. Should, well, okay. you know, it's not a realistic thing anyways. Like if you're in grad school, you probably don't have fucking time to do something like no, that. No, that's anyways. true. I certainly did. Yeah, no, 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 no. One thing that I thought was really interesting, and it was one thing that was very 1992 about this documentary. Um, they compared, so they talked about the crime, food getting stolen, just very basic, you know, very basic necessities being, you know, being out of in reach. the balance, out of yeah. reach. Yeah, thank you. Um, so they compared it to people that were living in a war zone and they compared the residents to acting like combat veterans. Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, like I said, this was in 1992. This was before we were using the term PTSD outside of people that had seen, had trauma related to military service. Mm -hmm. Now we're using it a little bit more freely. That's also a word that you really shouldn't use as a joke saying you have PTSD from something that I hate when people do that. It's yeah. like, oh my God, I'm so bipolar. Yeah. I no, mean, your moods change. I mean, it's I think normal. it's fair to say that you have experienced trauma, but just sure. because you experience trauma doesn't mean you have PTSD. Right. Um, I think it would be really fair to say that a lot of people that lived in extreme poverty and lived in housing projects yes. 
probably have PTSD. There's, uh, there's trauma yeah. just from being impoverished. There's trauma from generational trauma. <laughs> yeah. Witnessing a violent crime, uh, having a violent crime happen to you. Yes. Um, having to be so desperate that you have to sell drugs or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so they talked about anxiety and depression, suicidal ideation, personality changes, and substance abuse, all things that we know are associated with mental illness and also PTSD. So good on them for saying it. They didn't have the verbiage at the time, just because we didn't have the verbiage at the time. But it was, I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah, I wanted to also talk a little, just from memory, because I forgot to look this up, but broken window theory, which is a sociological theory. Are you mm-hmm. familiar? No. So broken window theory is basically crime is about opportunity, right? So Mm -hmm. like if I see an easy, what I think is an easy mark, I'm going to take the opportunity to try and do a crime on that, on that person to try and steal their wallet or whatever it is that may be going, that I may need if I need money or whatever. So broken window theory means that if you're seeing a building that's dilapidated, not taken care of, there are broken windows there's graffiti everywhere. It just does. It's not well taken care of. You know that the cops take a really long time to get there. Those areas are much more likely to be victimized by crime because it's about the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. So people know that they're not being. Those areas are not being monitored by the police. They know that the people who are living there might not report them to the police or be taken seriously or whatever. Might not have defenses. Might not have whatever it may be. So they're much more likely to attack, if you will, an area with a broken window than they are like a nice upscale neighborhood somewhere. Yeah. That's kind of the exception. Because I remember, do you remember, well, I'm sure our listeners know about the Cheshire murders that happened several years ago, right in our own backyard. Mm -hmm. And that was very unusual because Cheshire is a pretty affluent area of Connecticut. fancy. And the area, the neighborhood that it happened in was very like upper, upper middle class. Right. The folks that were very well off. That's why all the true crimes that we talk about are about fancy neighborhoods mm-hmm. because everybody's shocked that a crime happens in a fancy right. neighborhood. John Benet Ramsey, um, Darley Routiers, uh, children being killed. I'm just thinking of the ones that we've, we've covered. Uh, Martha Moxley, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. So it's, those are the ones that make headlines that make the news because <gasps> it couldn't happen here. Right. Missing white girl syndrome. Yeah. Yep. Missing white folks. That kind of leads into the, so the next segment was how, how the projects affected men and women differently. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Isn't that interesting? It mm-hmm. was, I got to say, this was a pretty progressive, good documentary for the, for the time. Um, they, without saying toxic masculinity, discuss toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, so you have a group of men that are unemployed, uh, that are living in hideous amounts of poverty and are living in a place that don't have, that doesn't have any social strata or social norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you kind of have to do crimes. Yeah. You have to crime. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do crimes to get what you want and to get some sort of status in your community. Right. And in any community throughout, throughout history, being a part of a gang is how you get protection, right? Like that's why people, Italians who came to the United States got in with the mafia because that was protection. Yeah. And often they would loan people money. Yeah. And it was, it was familial. It was a familial right. relationship. Yes. It was support. It was, you were somebody. Mm-hmm. You were somebody when you couldn't, you know, when your roof is leaking and you have rats crawling everywhere and you have roaches in your apartment and you can't pay your bills and your kids are sick and you can't, you you don't have access to anything. What do you have? 
It's it's also about that sense of power where you Mm -hmm. feel very powerless. Sure. Because I think these folks, despite the fact that there were many community activists, they mentioned, what's her name? I don't want to get it wrong. So let me look at my Mm -hmm. papers. Mm -hmm. Marion Stamps was one. uh, They said uh, they were talking about a lot of very outspoken black women um, who fought to keep people in the community. But they had no control over what was going on. Right. (laughs) There was nothing they could do. So except protest and and try to, to, you know, organize and make noise and things like that. Um, When people feel helpless, they turn to things that make them feel like they're a little bit more powerful. Right. And if you're a young male, what do you have is brute force. Right. And then you have the revolving door going in and out of prison. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, and then that's a whole other separate issue because you go to jail and you're somebody in jail. Right. And sometimes that's a better alternative than where you're living, unfortunately, mm-hmm. which should never be. But here we are. Three hats and a cot. Yeah. And I'm not saying that people that are incarcerated should not be treated with dignity, respect their right. human beings. Nor um, do I, nor do I think either of us think that a lot of people want to be in prison. Although there are some people who would rather be in prison. Some, could you blame them? No. And I, the reason I say that is because... And, you know, this is a, a, a totally different episode, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of trauma for, that comes from being in prison and then having to reintegrate into the community. So some people would just prefer to be where they know things. It's just what on. you know. You know right. how the world works inside. The devil you know. Yeah. I've seen Shawshank Redemption. I know so. And they talked about, you know, the huge dropout rate, mm-hmm. the huge lack of, yeah, huge lack of education. So um, they talked about the... So you have the young men. So you talked about the schools and the housing projects. Um, One third of the student population was absent on any given day in the local high school. As someone who works or has worked in inner city schools, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think it's kind of the same. Um, 300 out of 1,000 female students are pregnant. So that's one in three. So 30%. The dropout rate is 60%, which is three times higher than the average dropout rate. I think that's all the that's all the stats I had. I did have one more stat that um, uh, three out of four men in the community are unemployed. Mm-hmm. I wrote that I was too late on that. And there's limited places for employment, like we talked about with the factories being down. And then we went on to the women being impoverished. Um, so you have men that are, you know, in and out of jail, living a life of crime. So really high teen pregnancy rate or young pregnancy weight. So um, also very, very low abortion rates. Mm hmm. Um, very low birth control rates as well. Um, high infant mortality, that's three times the average rate of, in, at, at this time, this is all in 1992, so three times the average rate of infant mortality. Poor access to health care, very, very low birth weight um, related to poor nutrition mm-hmm. uh, during pregnancy, limited access to prenatal care, and substance abuse. So you have kiddos that are born in 20, 20-something weeks, um, viability for pregnancy is at 20 weeks. Um, 40 weeks is considered, you know, full term, 36 mm-hmm. to 40 weeks considered full term gestation. So being born at 26 weeks, you have a super duper small baby. That's maybe only a couple of pounds. That, and it's, they're yeah. viable outside the womb, but not without assistance. Not without assistance. Um, and they talked about it being, you know, around 30,000. <laughs> I wrote an eye roll. Yeah. Um, being around 30,000. <laughs> I'm cracking up. Jordan drew an emoji and I love it in her notes. I did draw an emoji. It's the last thing I wrote in my notes too. Um, back to low birth weight. So, and it costs, it costs $30,000 to sustain um, a baby with low rates. And it's mm-hmm. probably close to a million dollars now. 
I'm worth every damn penny. I'm not saying that. Right. Um, and it's also still a, lot, a lot of money for either for whoever fits the bill. Correct. And also more likely to have intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities later in life. I believe it is one in five. ADHD mm-hmm. is, is very likely um, among babies who have had or children who have had poor nutrition or mm-hmm. poor prenatal care. Yeah. And then you have a dropout rate that's really high. So you have people that have learning disabilities, don't do well in a school setting, having you know, an ADHD diagnosis on top of that. Forget it. It's all over but the crying. And then the cycle continues. Poor education, poor access to employment, and mm-hmm. the school to prison pipeline. And here we have it. They talked about a mom that um, had seven children, and she glowed about her children when she talked to them, but she had substance abuse um, mm-hmm. issues. So five of the children were in her mom's custody, and she had one of her children was extremely, extremely, extremely uh, premature and born very underweight. And um, the house and uh, DPH ended up uh, Department of Public Health. Yep. Uh, removing removing the her remaining two children from her custody to her mom's custody. So the life of these six, um, seven children are in the hands of an elderly person. Right. And they even verbalize that the Department of Health said, you know, if something happens to this woman, these seven kids have nowhere else to go besides into the system. Right. Which, Which is not a very no reliable place for children to get the the care and the affection no. and the attention that they need. No. And then while all this is happening, uh, the 1980s happened, and fuck you, Reagan, uh, decreased and did cutbacks on all government federal programming. Right. It didn't suck to begin with. What was Reagan the one who? He was the pull you up by your bootstraps, motherfucker. Well, that and uh, the myth of the welfare queen. Yep. Yeah, because, you know. Right, because that's what these people wanted was to just. And I think. Have no upward mobility at all. They're, yeah. And it's, and you're basically going from below the poverty line to just barely above the poverty line. $2,500 a year is what it costs to keep somebody on welfare in 1992. Mm -hmm. So in today's money, I'm just guessing around 10 grand. I don't have my phone to get my inflation calculator, but I would say around 10 grand in this money. Right. So can you picture yourself living on 10 grand? No. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't think that would even get me through six months. No. Mm-mm. No. That would barely. Never mind. Cover and that's me as a, a single yeah. person. Yeah. Never mind uh, somebody who has children. Yeah, or if you have a, you have a partner, that's, yeah, that's, that would, yeah, me and my spouse couldn't do that either. And then we, let's get to my emoji. And then at the very end of the documentary, so, you know, there's no happy ending. There's no resolution. It's just continuing. So there's government programs that are kind of working slightly a little bit. And we've already discussed that it takes, and this is all anecdotal. This is just what we have seen. It takes years and years and years and years and years to try to get out of Right, exactly. Yeah, so people say, oh, this isn't working after five or, you know, after a couple of years and then... And a lot of sacrifice, I have to say, too. Yeah. Because I work with, um, right now, I I work with a lot of families who, especially single moms who really want to give their kids a chance. And Mm -hmm. I have a lot of my students do really, really well in school and have very high aspirations, but that requires a lot of sacrifice on their parents' part. It does. It does. And everybody's everybody's doing the best that they can. And then we have, can I just read what I wrote with the emoji? Yes, please. Yes. And we have white people complaining about the prop, their property value going down due to adjacent projects. And I did the eye roll emoji. Except it looks like you doing an eye roll. 
which dovetails nicely into what my documentary covered, which was after. Not in my backyard. Right. It was after. So Cabrini Green between the years of 1995 and 2011 was being torn down and residents relocated. So the plan was they built new condos in the, in the place of these of Cabrini Green with the intention of integrating like it, it being a mixed income community. So 50% of the condos went for the market rate. 30% were for, for, were for, former Cabrini residents, and those folks were charged 30% of their yearly income. So whatever that was, they had to pay in rent. 20% went to low income. So I think he said, no, this was in, I don't remember when the documentary was made, probably like the the aughts. He said $11.50 for the market rate condos per month, $9.50 for the low income condos, which is a lot. That's a lot of money. That's more than I pay in rent right now. That's about my mortgage. That's less, a little less than my mortgage. So they interview a black man named Abu Ansari, and he talks about his experience moving in with his partner to these mixed income condos. And he said, I, I really had to ve- deal with the idea of being a gentrifier. And he said, he was very much like, I moved in to stay here. I want to be a part of this community. This is really important to me. And then directly following that, they interview a white man who's moved into there who says gentrification is a good thing. And I was like, is that allowed? (laughs) I don't think you're allowed to say that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So in this new area, which I think one of them is called Parkside and the other one is called Old Town Village, low-income residents have to do regular drug screenings and criminal background checks and home inspections. Yeah. And they talked about, they interviewed this woman, Deirdre Brewster, who says you basically have to be a nun. Like you can't, there are no, there's no room for mistakes. And Deirdre has, I can't remember how many children she said she had, but one of her children got into trouble in school and was charged with a misdemeanor. So she had to have that daughter live with Deirdre's parents in another location. Because if anyone in the family gets into legal trouble, nobody can live there. Like the entire family gets kicked out. So she's like, and if anything happens to my parents that my daughter can't live with them, I don't know what to do. We can't live here anymore. If, Look, if we're, I take having, her back in. we're having people of color live in the area and they're all Sydney Poitier. What the hell? Yes, exactly. We're not just people that screw up and make mistakes and are just doing the best that we can. Yeah. So, and then they, they talk to this guy who I think is like the president of the HOA or whatever. And he thinks he's doing such a good thing. He does. And oh. he has, a, he hosts a yearly barbecue. Oh, for fuck's for sake. For everybody to come. And he was like, but what ha- what ends up happening is that the low income folks come out in droves and the middle-class folks don't come for the most part. And then they describe it as a way for the low income folks to see what it is like to be middle class so that they have an inspiration to like get a full-time job and be contributing members of society. That's what was the whole, like literally nothing has changed since like what the forties, the fifties. Wait a (laughs) minute. So hot dogs was the thing that we were missing this whole time. By the way, it made me think of a Reddit post I saw recently because black folks call it the cookout and we call it the barbecue. I think. I think that's the difference. But the Reddit post was in like... Um, I say cookout. It, it was in say, Black yeah. People Twitter. So it's like mostly Black people commenting. Yeah. And they were saying, the question was, what song are you doing at karaoke to get invited to the, the barbecue? And people were saying like, Paramore, Spice Girl. <laughs> Don't stop believing. I just want to let you know 
especially after we started our cult, you're all invited to the barbecue, except the qualifier is that everyone has to do a karaoke song for entrance. <laughs> and if you can come up with a little choreographed dance, we would love yes. that. You know, this head of this HOA wanted a group photo and he had the chef's hat on and well, here's the spatula. Here's the kicker. Okay. What? At the end of it, he says, well, our son is becoming school age. So we're moving to the suburbs so my son can have access to better schools. <laughs> Sir, I don't know if I could say this on air, but I could say that. So we lived in a town that was a little, was a little on the iffy side and we had a young uh, person in public office. We did. And yes. then, had, then they had children mm -hmm. and then they moved to a nice uh -huh. place to yes. raise their children. Yep. Yeah. We, we, uh, we want to do better so long as it's it's not us who's being affected, right? We moved out because the taxes sucked. Yeah, the, the mill rate's <laughs> terrible. Um, so there's this the this persisting belief that low income people, if low income people move next to more affluent people, they have a quote unquote example to live by now, right? Because they're because being what do they say like being poor is a character flaw, right? It's a failure. It's a personal failure. Which I'm not saying that because I agree with them. Not, I'm being yeah. sarcastic. It's not. And a, they interview Abu, Abu again, and he says the the well-off folks don't want to blame themselves when things don't change. They don't want to say like, "Hey, let's look inward and see what we can do differently." They just mm -hmm. leave, <laughs> like the, like the white flight that was happening in the forties and fifties. They just leave. Well, we're having another one post pandemic. Yep. And it's like, and I've worked. I was so community nurse for many many years, so I've been in every kind of neighborhood. I've like I said, I've been to the projects. I got to say the people in the low incomes, those are the ones that are like wanting to make you a plate and give you some lunch. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, and they, they, they impress upon this in the documentary that I watched is that the, the sense of community was so great yeah. that when people were displaced, they just didn't know what to do because yeah. now they're far away from their friends and their family and their, and their community. Mm -hmm. So they ended up just gathering in the same location anyways, and having a regular, like, meet up to cook out. I think they call Spending. it, um, what do they call it? Like throwback, not throwback when Mondays, it was like, um, old school Mondays awesome. they had, which was really cute so that they could see the people that they hadn't seen in a while. These and are your support system. These right. are your people, your family, your family. Your they had like B roll of the, the kids with their plate of hot dogs and corn on the cob and their little huggies. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Those little barrels full of like yeah. sugar water. Basically. <laughs> basically, but it's fine. We're yeah. fine. We're, I swear we're fine. You're supposed to have that when you're a kid. You have to. Yeah. Now, now you and I went through a bottle of Tums on vacation. Yeah, um, it's true. And I, and I like, I was thinking about this after the doc, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I'm, I'm annoyed when people's, you know, when, when we have the white flag, the not in my backyard. And I have, like, I don't like the argument that you have to like know somebody, you have to like sit down and talk to somebody that lived in the projects, you have to talk to somebody who's not housed, you have to talk to a black person, a gay, you know, I hate that, you know, well, I know, a I know a person of a marginalized group. And so therefore, I empathize with them. And I think they should have rights. Right. I have um, a black friend, so I can't be racist. Yeah. Right? Or I, I voted want, for Obama. So I'm not yeah, racist. Or I want the best for them. Right. You shouldn't have to know somebody. Right. And I, and it's like hard to say if my worldview was painted, because you and I get to meet people from all different walks of life That's because true. of our professions. And I'd like to think that I would feel the same way if I didn't. I, you know, there's no way of knowing if I would. But it's like, it's, it's sickening. It's sickening to me. It is. We're like, oh, 
You know, I'm, I don't you know, know that I saw her. I'm listening to Brene Brown's Rising Strong again. And mm-hmm. one of her things that she says in, I think, more than one book is that people are hard to hate up close. It's true. Which is true. But like you're saying, you should. You, it shouldn't have to get to the point where you know somebody personally to understand mm-hmm. and be empathetic and be compassionate. You should just, it should just be a matter of like, hey, we're both human beings. We deserve the same dignity and respect. Yeah, we all like, you know, we both like cats and hate cilantro. We should. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not that different. But it's hard It's hard to say if we feel that way because we've had right. close encounters or not. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, if it's what it takes, it's what it takes. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Uh, not to, not like I'm patting myself on the back or anything because I didn't pick this neighborhood because of anything in particular. But like my neighborhood has all different kinds of people mm-hmm. here right now, you know. And one, one of the reasons I like it is because nobody bothers me. <laughs> it's quiet. It's safe. Everybody I've run into has been kind and respectful. I mean, and I, there's people of all different colors. There's people, well, I don't know what anybody's like religion is or anything like that. Cause I don't talk to anybody, but, um, nor do I know anybody else's socioeconomic, economic Economic status. status. I just know that they look different than me and everybody's chill. And I like that. Yeah. We like when people look different and are chill with each other. Would I get invited to the cookout? I don't know. (laughs) We would totally go though. I would probably come up and say, hey, how's it going? You guys having a cookout? And they'd be like, yeah, you want some? <laughs> Maybe. I'm the friendly one. That's why I'm the, <laughs> hi! I'm the scared one. I brought a snack. Because I'm scared of everyone. Oh, did I tell you my grandmother went to, um, <laughs> I love this story. I have to tell it. Uh, my grandmother, who, um, OG social anxiety warrior and queen, mm-hmm. got herself real jazzed up one day and went tag sailing by herself. <gasps> for her i know love that for her Mm -hmm. um so she walked down this very long driveway to what she thought was a tag sale and started walking around and picked up this little box that she thought was real cute and went where do i pay for this what was happening really ma'am this is a cook ma'am we're just having a cookout (laughs) (laughs) that would be me because i have social anxiety too they asked her if she wanted a hot dog and said, oh, that's very nice. <laughs> so there she went back down the really long driveway. She's like, I'm good. Yeah, all by herself. So yeah, so she went to, and I'm sure that family is, if you're listening, I doubt it. But if you're listening, yeah, you talk about the lady that's came to your barbecue all those years. That's too funny. Hey, remember that time that lady showed up and thought we were having a tag sale? Honestly, in my opinion... Going to tax sales and estate sales is very vulnerable because like you're looking through someone's things while they're sitting right there in front of you. <laughs> that is so awkward. So I feel like they're judging me like one time and I was totally judging this guy. I'm so sorry, but he bought my old Creed CD. <laughs> it's a dollar. I think it was all scratched up. You want a Creed CD? I had a Creed CD in the 90s. Not Creed Bratton. <laughs> not Creed Bratton. That's the well, only Creed that I back nowadays. I did not know Creed was a religious icon back when I was like 10. Oh, I thought you were talking about Creed Brown. Are you take me higher? (laughs) Please don't copyright us, Creed. (laughs) No. No. Well, my church is having a town-wide tag sale on the green if you want to go judge a lot of people at once. Okay. I actually went there last year in my pajamas because I had to drop something off and then I ended up having to do something and there I was in my leopard PJs. And there I was, barbecue sauce on my titties. <laughs> Not bad, but still. Yeah, that was a different time. <laughs> yep. Um, so that was completely green. Don't be a racist asshole. Watch Candyman. Both of them. 
follow us on BioPsych Pod, which is our Instagram and our Twitter that we don't use very much. And yeah, no, not at all. Also, Elon Musk bought the majority share in Twitter, so Mm -hmm. I don't want to use it at all anymore. That's true. Yeah. So, or you can go on Facebook at BioPsychoSocial a podcast. And we have to give a shout out to our newest patron, Alexandra. Hello. Yes. Thank you, Alexandra, for becoming our newest patron. For those of you who don't know, well, you all know by this point in time, we have a Patreon. Yes, we do. And you can join at the $1 tier and you'll be an actual angel. If you join at the $3 tier, you're a biopsycho socialite like Alexandra is. Um, And also... Brian is a biopsychosocialite, and so is Alexis, and so is Jill. Yes. And if you are on that tier, the $3 tier, you get to see our lovely faces in a video. Yes. Every, whenever we <laughs> publish a video. Yes. Um, and you also get bonus episodes. We've been playing Simulacra. Yes, we have. Which is a hor- horror game, I guess. So yeah, you get to see us do that and get scared and stuff like that. That's yeah. fun. And forget what we're doing and forget where we are and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yes. We should just like we should just put like a like a camera like in the car with us one time too. Yeah, that would be interesting. It would also for some, for who I don't know, but be litigious. <laughs> it'd be kind of a litigious nightmare. Yes. Yeah, Kayla likes to yell at Teslas. Do I? You yelled at a Tesla when we were driving up to the <laughs> when we were driving up to the Berkshires. You called Elon Musk a fucker or something. He's a fucker. You're in my car. <laughs> And I like to go on record and say you only grab the oh shit handle three times. Thank you very much on our <laughs> on our girls week. So, so a random question. I thought of one the other day. No, I can't remember. What is your favorite food to eat that's cheap, fast, and easy? I was thinking about this last night because I was making myself a... Oh, Lipton side. What were you making? Well, I, it, this is not cheap, but it was a um, buffalo chicken, fake chicken patty. Mm-hmm from Morningstar Farms, but because that's like my quick go-to. But when I was growing up, I think I've told you this before, my sister and I would have chicken patties and rice pilaf, like if our mom was working. Mm -hmm. Not that my dad couldn't cook, Christopher. Shots fired. But anyways, it was just like one of those like Purdue chicken patties and a north north side of rice pilaf is the easiest thing to make. She was in high school. I was probably in middle school, but yeah, that's still one of my faves comfort food. Mine's North Sides too, actually. Or so, yeah. hot dogs and mac and cheese. Oh, so. that's a good one. I is yeah. So I like a North Side, which is actually what I had last night, like nine o'clock. I was super hungry and I ran mm. earlier in the day and I was hungry, so I had a packet of. I've done that before. Yeah. I like the broccoli and cheese. Oh, I like the butter. Mm-hmm. And that one's good. And the creamy garlic shells. But um, shout out to to all y'all who avoid, who boil that shit over every time and have to scrape milk off your stove. You're my people. Pro tip. Uh, put a little bit of oil in, in the water and it won't boil over. Well, I was today years old when I learned that. <laughs> um, the other one that I invented in college was I wanted nachos and I had none of the equipment to make nachos. So I popped a bag of microwave popcorn because it's corn. Yeah. Um, and I covered it in hot sauce and sprinkled it with cheddar cheese and put that back into the microwave and made a gelatinous ball of cheddar cheese, hot sauce, and popcorn, which is to this day, one of my favorite snacks slash I've done a meal out of it. It sounds like one of those popcorn balls that we used to get for Halloween. Oh, these are way better. Mm. I'll have to make them for you sometime. I remember my great grandmother had them. And I was oh. like, what the hell is this? I like, know. They just yeah, get, they just get, they gave, them, they gave them to us like at a fourth grade holiday party. And there was just a, like 
shrapnel of popcorn <laughs> ball everywhere. And I'm like, I'm sure they regretted that. For those of you who don't know, a popcorn ball is exactly what it sounds like. It's popcorn stuck together in a sticky mess ball. That's, that's like marshmallow. It's wrapped not the up right in answer. some cellophane and you eat it for Halloween for some reason. Acme used to put them out and they were in like a little bag. Yeah, yeah. it's not the right answer. It's not the right answer. I do not like sweet popcorn. Savory all It's like day. when you go out for Halloween and somebody gives you raisins. We were watching our niece last night and uh, she wanted us, she wanted some raisins. So I gave her a little pack of raisins. She went the white ones. Oh, the yogurt cup. I'm like, (laughs) ma'am, I had already opened it. So I had to eat the stupid plain raisins and I gave her the white ones. And then we went back to watching Encanto. Well, anyway, it was a lovely season, y'all. Yeah. Well, we'll probably won't be away for too long. Not that long though. But yeah. So be good to yourselves and each other. Be kind to yourselves. Um, if you're a cat, bathe yourself on my couch like yeah. Luna is doing right now. If you're, or take a nap on your very cute little dolly bed. Yes. And we love you. We love you. Bye. See you. Bye. I just made that up. I love that. Thanks.